You may be seated, and thank you for being here. I'm filling in for Bishop uh, Myers this morning, and I want to um, have you turn in your Bibles to Psalms chapter uh, 119 and verse 75. I want to read one verse uh, in your hearing this morning, Psalms chapter 119 and verse 75. Of course, we know Psalms 119 is the largest chapter of any book in the Bible with a number of verses in it, but we're just looking at Psalms uh, 119 and verse 75. The writer of Psalms says, I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right and that thou in faithfulness hast afflicted me. I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right and that thou in faithfulness hast afflicted me. I want to speak for the next few moments on this subject. Why? Do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? Horatio Spadford was born in the early 1800s in Chicago. He had established a very successful legal practice as an attorney and a young businessman. He became very wealthy and was also a very devout Christian. Among his close friends were several evangelists, including the famous Dwight L. Moody, also from Chicago. Spadford was married and had five children, but he lost his only son at a very young age. He was left with four daughters and a young wife. It wasn't long and his wealth evaporated in the wake of the great Chicago fire of 1871. Having invested heavily in real estate along Lake Michigan's shoreline, he lost everything overnight. Desiring a rest for his wife and four daughters as well as wishing to join and to assist evangelist Dwight L. Moody in one of their crusades in Great Britain, Spadford planned a European trip for his family in 1873. In November of that same year, due to unexpected last-minute business developments, he had to remain in Chicago, but he sent his four daughters and his wife on ahead as scheduled on the SS Ville de Havre. He expected to follow in a few days. But on November 22nd, the ship was struck by the Locrin, an English vessel, and it sank in 12 minutes and over 200 lives were lost. Several days later, the survivors finally landed at Cardiff, Wales, and Miss Spadford cabled her husband with six ominous words. Saved alone, 
what should I do? Spadford left immediately to join his wife, and as their vessel approached the area of the ocean, thought to be where the ship carrying his four daughters had sunk, he stood out on the rail of the vessel, and he looked down on a vast ocean, knowing that his four girls were somewhere out there, never to be seen again. He took out some paper and he began to pen these words. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way. When sorrows, like sea, billows roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend, even so it is well with my soul. Ladies and gentlemen, we know that the Bible says that judgment falls on the just and the unjust meaning that even though we are attempting to serve God, we are not exempt from trouble. We know this. We know that life is not fair. Things do not always happen like we would wish. We've lived long enough to understand that as long as we are on this earth, we're going to be subject to earthly trouble. But there is another level of this that I believe is worth exploring today. And it seems counterintuitive that there would be an affliction that comes with faithfulness. It seems more logical that if you are faithful to God and to His Word, that there would be a reward of smooth sailing, or at least you would be subject to what everyone else is. What is more difficult to understand is the fact that sometimes we are afflicted in our faithfulness when others who are not faithful are not afflicted. How can that be? Job was faithful and Job was afflicted in ways that others were not. He was singled out. Not because he was a troublemaker, not because he was sinning, but because he was faithful. Job was not only afflicted, he began to experience the pile-on effect of others. When you're in trouble, it seems like there's a pile-on effect. We used to play a game when I was a kid called Kill the Man with the Ball. And all of us... Guys would just run around on a field with a ball, and whoever had the ball, everybody tried to kill them. 
tackle him. And sometimes it was a guy who was fast and elusive, and he would run and zigzag as much as he could. And finally someone as equally fast as him would finally grab a hold of a leg or an arm and pull him to the ground. And that was all that the rest of us slow guys needed. Because once they had him on the ground, the rest of us would just pile on. And the ball would squirt out and somebody else would grab it and run and then we'd all chase him. And that's how we used up all of our energy before the bell rang for us to report to class. But that pile-on effect we feel oftentimes in life. And it seems like whenever things go bad, they, they go bad in buckets. And you know the old saying, when it rains, it pours. Job, no doubt, was feeling this way, and he described this feeling in a very descriptive way as we read in Job chapter 30 and verse 1. But now they that are younger than I have me in derision, which means either uh, mockery or ridicule, whose fathers I would have disdained, which means to dishonor, to have set with the dogs of my flock. Yea, whereto might the strength of their hands profit me, in whom old age was perished. For want and famine, they were solitary, fleeing into the wilderness in former time, desolate and waste, who cut up mallows by the bushes and juniper roots for their meat. They were driven forth from among men. They cried after them as after a thief. To dwell in the cliffs of the valleys and caves of the earth and in the rocks among the bushes they brayed under the nettles they were gathered together. They were children of fools, yea, children of base men. They were viler than the earth, and now am I their song. Yea, I am their byword. They abhorred me, they flee far from me, and spare not to spit in my face. Because he hath loosed my cord and afflicted me, they have also let loose the bridle before me. Upon my right hand rise the youth, they push away my feet, and they raise up against me the ways of their destruction. They mar my path. They set forward my calamity. They have no helper. They come upon me as a wide breaking in of waters. In the desolation, they roll themselves upon me. Tears are turned upon me. They pursue my soul as the wind, and my welfare passeth away as a cloud. Job describes these people that were vagabonds. They were the desperate ones of Job's day. They were vile and they were base and they lived a difficult existence. And if Job had not been afflicted, neutralized with all of the trouble that he was facing, they would have not been his match. They would have never felt the freedom to pile on. But now, Job says, because of my affliction, 
I have become their song. Paul describes this phenomenon in Romans chapter 1 and verse 32 when he talks about the pleasure that sin takes in seeing others fall. David knew this feeling. He was anointed to be the next king. And as soon as he was, all the trouble started coming his way. No one else was running for his life from his own king. No one else was living like a fugitive in caves when all he had done was bring victory to the camp of Israel for defeating Goliath, the giant Philistine. David knew that the neighbors were talking when they went over to visit his dad, Jesse. Hey, Jesse, have you heard from David lately? We've heard that he's in serious trouble. You think that Prophet Samuel missed it when he poured that anointing oil on him? Seems like if God was in this, he would be king already. There's always that pile-on effect of humanity doing what humanity does, operating within the sphere of what appears to be obvious. David knew about the hushed voices and the whispers of explanation when the visitors came by his father's house. He recorded these famous words in Psalms chapter 25 and verse 2. Oh, my God. I trust in thee. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. The prophet Micah said, Rejoice not against me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I fall, I shall arise. Daniel was afflicted in his faithfulness and sent to a den of lions when his only crime was consistency. The three Hebrew children sent to a burning, fiery furnace for being faithful. Abraham was called to the top of Mount Moriah to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice simply because he was faithful. Sometimes you feel like you're being faithful, and in your faithfulness, you are being afflicted. And all of these great iconic men and women of Scripture knew this phenomenon of the fiery trial that faithful people go through. But the question before us all today is simply, why? Why is there an affliction that goes with faithfulness. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why was Job chosen for a very specific trial? And why does this affliction come seemingly in the midst of faithfulness? I tell you today that it is for the purpose of getting a deeper revelation of what God is planning for your life. It is tough love. It is not for the purpose of causing pain. It is not for the purpose of testing you only to see if you can survive. It is for the purpose 
of positioning you in God's divine plan. You see, my friend, if you wanted to be a doctor, you can get all the knowledge, you can go through all the schooling, but eventually, before they license you, you're going to have to do something that's called residency. You're going to put in about 80 hours a week work in an emergency room somewhere on the backside of South Dakota <laughs> for hardly any money. Somewhere cold, somewhere where you're not getting all of the accolades that this profession deserves. Why? You've already gone through medical school. You've already passed the boards. Why are you going through residency? Simply because you are being positioned for handling a stressful job with little sleep. We want to see how you react when you have everything going against you and the emergency room fills up with one crisis after another. Are you able to keep your head on your shoulders? Are you able to still work in that environment and make the right decisions? Why should you and I be put through that fiery trial when we have been faithful, when you have served God for 10 years or more? Why are you going through the test and the trial? It is because you are being positioned for a favorable assignment that will reward you all the days of your life. Because what can't break you can make you. You and I could go home and sit on our couch with the masses watch television eight hours a day or spend your day playing video games. You can do that, but you won't be a doctor. You'll not be chosen for a special assignment. I heard a story the other day from an old friend of mine who's been a trial lawyer for a number of years, and he was telling me about how sometimes you have to know when not to talk. He said years ago he was defending a guy, and he'd gotten him a sweetheart deal, and the guy wasn't going to have to serve any time. And he said uh, we'd already worked it out with the prosecutor, and, and uh, the guy was going to be on probation, but he was really being shown mercy by the court. And the guy said to his attorney, when we go back in there, I want to know, if I can address the court. And the attorney said, well, I, I guess you could, but there's really no reason to. He said, I've got a right to speak. And so the attorney said, okay, well, if that's what you want to do. So he went in there, and the judge said, my understanding is that a plea has been worked out. As the defendant, do you want to say anything? And the defendant stood up, and he said, Yes, Your Honor, I do. My attorney has recommended that I not speak, but I told my attorney that I have a right to speak and to address this court, and I would like to exercise that right. 
And the judge says, yes, you do have a right to address this court, but you also have a right to be stupid. Now, what would you like to say? The guy said, I'm good, and he sat down. (laughs) I'll never forget reading a story by a man by the name of Michael Deaver who was a assistant um, to um, the late President Ronald Reagan. He worked uh, in some capacity as um, a counselor or some capacity he was close with um, Ronald and Nancy Reagan. And he recalls the story of when he was getting on the elevator with the president in the White House and some of the Secret Service agents got on and they said, uh, Mr. President, we want to tell you that there's been a situation that has happened with Gary Hart. Gary Hart was... Uh, looked like he was going to be the uh, the nomination for the Democratic Party, and that would be who Ronald Reagan would be running against for his reelection. And uh, they were in that particular season of of President Reagan's um, presidency, and so uh, they got on the elevator, and the Secret Service informed the president that uh, they had uh, found that Gary Hart had been down here in South Florida and had gotten on a on a boat called Monkey Business and had gone over to the island of Bimini with a lady by the name of Donna Rice that was not his wife, and and uh, this had all gotten out in the media, and uh, it, it looked like that uh, Gary Hart now would not be uh, the nomination for the Democratic Party. And uh, as the door was fixed to close, Michael Deaver said that President Reagan looked at all the Secret Service guys and said, well... Boys will be boys. And he shut the door, and they all rode up to the second floor where the residency is, and the doors open, and the president got off, and he turned around, he looked at the rest of the Secret Service and some of his assignment guys, and he turned around, and he said, but they won't be president. Is it possible that you and I go through things that we cannot explain that it appears that others do not go through. And for us to understand that the purpose in the pain could be the fact that God is preparing us for a very special assignment. Because you see, my friend, when you go through a test, you get a testimony. When you go through a trial, you get an anointing that the average Joe does not have. You dig from some deep wells, and unless you've ever gone through that, you never know, hallelujah, what it is to be thankful for the grace of God and the trials and the troubles that have stretched you and strained you that you didn't have an explanation for. But now you can look back and say, God was with me through those dark days. The pain, the suffering, the strain, the struggle, the hurt, and the humiliation of basic training to be a Navy SEAL is for a purpose. As difficult as it is physically, 
they will all tell you that the most difficult part is the mental battle. It will either break you or it will make you. And it is for the distinct purpose of preparing those elite soldiers for the fog of war. How will you react when everything around you is falling apart? Can you keep your wits about you? The famous boxer Mike Tyson said, Everybody has a strategy until they get hit in the face. (laughs) We've all got a plan. But we also know that this life is full of a lot of twists and turns. And though we may have our future laid out for us, what are we going to do when we get hit in the face? For those special SEAL Team 6 warriors, they push them to limits that they don't even realize that they can go through. And I have friends that have gone through that process And they will tell you, everybody in the program is physically fit. It's not about who's most physical. It's about who's strongest mentally and emotionally. Can you be pushed to the limit and still keep your wits about you and still remember what your training is, to still remember what the process is? when everything around you is falling apart, it's to prepare you. Because when you're over there and you're in battle and you're in the midst of the fog of war and bullets are flying around you and your comrades are dropping on either side of you, how are you going to react? Ladies and gentlemen, if you and I are going to be used for God, if we're going to be used in these last days, we're going to have to be strong mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. And we got to say, God, I'm going to walk with you no matter what comes my way, no matter the fog or the disorientation of disappointment, I've got a God that's going to help me get through it all. And so there is an affliction. There is a testing that happens to the faithful. What appears to be punishment may actually be preparation. God is preparing you for something great. He stretches you so he can strengthen you. It's not comfortable, but it's God's plan for your life. He has not forsaken you. He has you in the palm of his hand. He is setting you up for an anointing and a revelation He is preparing you for a special touch that can only come from God. He wants you to get something that man cannot give you, that your family cannot give you, that education cannot give you, that nothing on your own can give you until you know how to get a hold of God, until you know how to reach down deep and say, God, if you don't help me, I'm not going to make it. I've come to tell somebody today that God is by your side, and you are not alone in your struggle. I feel very blessed to have been raised in a good family with 
loving parents that loved each other and loved God and, and loved us, my sister and I, as their children. I feel like as a young man, I was very fortunate. On my mother's side, I had a grandmother and a grandfather who were Sicilian Italians that had immigrated from the island of Sicily and come through Ellis Island and worked hard and been successful up in the Boston, Massachusetts area. They had two children, a son and a daughter, and their son had two daughters, and their daughter had a son and a daughter, which meant that I was the only boy that was coming down through that side. So as a young man, my grandfather retired at a very young age, and so just as a boy, my Italian grandfather would try to teach me the things that he loved. One of the things that he loved was the Boston Red Sox. And so I grew up on the Boston Red Sox, on Carl Yastrzemski and all that gang. And my grandfather would listen to every game on his little radio and, and then try to watch it in a little television, black and white television, and would try to teach me about that. My, father was a business, my grandfather was a businessman, and he would try to teach me financial principles. And I grew up in an environment where I not only had loving parents but also loving grandparents. My father's parents were... Uh, native Floridians, and uh, taught us how to hunt and, and how to fish. And, and uh, my grandmother could make those great big cat head biscuits that my mouth waters just thinking about. They just kind of fell apart in your hands. And then uh, to be raised since I was only uh, a week or two year, two weeks old in a Pentecostal church. And before... My father and our family came here in 1971, pastoring in a little town in the panhandle of Florida called Port St. Joe, and growing up on those beautiful beaches of the Gulf Coast that nobody knew about at the time, but we all did. It was our own personal playground. And long before Destin was discovered and long before all of that area became a resort destination area, it was just us kids running up and down the beach and playing in the surf. I grew up in a good environment and seemingly had everything going my way. But somewhere around uh, the age of 13, my sister, who was always very astute to any possible uh, situations that I may be facing, she was like another mother. And she loved to teach and, of course, recently retired as being a elementary school principal, but I was her very first student, and she had me in school uh, from, from the moment I could talk and uh, set up curriculum plans and um, would reward me if I uh, got the right grades, and I can still remember the, the great gifts that she gave me even before I started kindergarten uh, as she would uh, put me through all of the uh, rigors of her uh, a little school class room in our little house. In that environment, I felt like 
I was raised as a very fortunate young man. But somewhere around 13 years old, my sister started noticing that I wasn't walking right. Mom, Dad, something's wrong with David. And uh, we didn't know what it was, and I just blew it off because my sister was, you know, maybe uh, overemphasizing something that was not that big of a deal. But she was persistent that I needed to go and get uh, checked out. I needed to go and get an x-ray. And so finally... Um, we uh, went down and got an x-ray and found out that I had what was then referred to as severe scoliosis. Um, what they discovered at that point was that the bottom part of my spine curved at a 64-degree angle, and the top part of my spine uh, curved at a 56-degree angle. I remember going to these orthopedic surgeons in the Orlando area and them uh, measuring and, and showing these x-rays and and all the horrifying pictures. And I can remember as just a young man uh, meeting with all these different doctors and getting second opinions. But the consensus of it all was that uh, I needed to be operated on. And even though I didn't personally feel any pain, they said that as he grows, these curves will widen. Eventually his organs uh, will be challenged, and he will be in a desperate situation, even life-threatening. If he doesn't have the surgery, he'll be in a wheelchair by the time he's 25 years old. I was hearing all of this now at the age of 14. So we got different opinions, and we were prayed for. And I remember as a young boy being brought up on the platform, you know, when you're a teenager, you don't want to be singled out for anything. But I can remember uh, being brought up on the platform and people praying for me at different uh, events and Florida camp and so forth. And and being embarrassed by all of that, but not realizing uh, that I was entering a test and a trial that would be to my benefit. A lot of times when you're going through things, you don't realize what you're going through is for your benefit, not for your hurt. But through the course of that, they suggested that we uh, operate on my spine, a few 17 vertebrae with two steel uh, Harrington rods, and that I would uh, have to um, have those in my back. At that time, the procedure was very antiquated. The bars would oftentimes come loose uh, in your spine, and they'd have to go back in, and and they would have to redo it and so forth. And and, uh, through all of that different counsel, uh, they made a decision, my parents, uh, that that we would not go through the surgery, but instead uh, I would wear a brace. And so they formed a brace uh, to my body, and I wore it. Uh, 23 hours a day. And so I went through high school wearing a brace under my shirt. And you could see it like if I moved around and the brace would, you know, uh, you could see it through the shirt. But for the most part, if you weren't really studying uh, another person's movement, I looked like uh, any other normal kid. It did come into some, it was an advantage in some situations because uh, like if we were playing football and uh, we were just playing like a pickup game in a park and people didn't realize that I had this brace under me, when they would throw their shoulder into me to tackle, they would hit something other than just ribs and fat. They would hit something that did not move. I remember intercepting one time in a little street uh, pickup game that we had and, and the guy coming to tackle me and when he did, he hit that thing, and he's like, what in the world do you have on? 
I was like, that's my brace. <laughs> but in the, in the process of going through that, I, I became involved in something that was called Bible quizzing. And Bible quizzing was something that I could pour myself into because many of the physical things that I wanted to pursue was not possible now because of the limitations of my back. When I got into Bible quizzing, Bible quizzing gave me a love for God's Word, and it gave me a desire for excellence. But it also showed me that I could do anything that I put my mind to, and it gave me a taste of winning. I believe that every single individual has to get a taste of winning to know what it feels like to be in the winner's circle. You have to get a taste of winning to know what it feels like to overcome. I would have to say that I am so thankful that I learned to love God's Word at a young age. Not because I wanted to, but because in many ways I was forced to. Not realizing at the time that what I was putting in my heart and in my mind would serve me well for years and years to come. Ladies and gentlemen, there are many situations that you and I could recount in our own lives, but it forced us to a place of having to not depend on our own strength, but rather having to depend on the strength of God. And when you and I have to depend on the strength of God, you and I can join the masses in saying, God has been good to me. He has blessed me and he has kept me. And yes, though I may be faithful and I recognize that there's an affliction that goes with being faithful, I realize that the same God that put Job through the trial is the same God that blessed him ten times over when he got through the trial. I don't know what you may be going through, but I've come to tell you, God's got a blessing for you, and the blessing's going to come in the midst of the battle. Would you stand to your feet today? Last night we had the opportunity to meet with some of our, our men in a program that we call Joshua's Men. And I told them about the story of the cake. You know, the Bible says, and we've probably all quoted it, for we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. And if you and I look at that, sometimes we encounter certain things in our life that if we just looked at that event by itself, we cannot say where there's any good. Just like when you're making a cake, you can take some single ingredients, and if you just eat that single ingredient by itself, like vanilla extract or something else, it's going to be bitter. It's not going. But you put it in there together with all of the other things, and they all work together to produce something really good. You and I can point to situations in our life that if we just looked at that situation by itself, 
we would not be able to say that it was good. But yet we know the Word of God. All things work together for good to them that love the Lord, to them that are called according to His purpose. I don't understand why I may be going through what I'm going through. You may not understand why you're going through what you may be going through. But you've got confidence in the Word of God that everything is going to work together for good.